Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. I'm really, 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 really excited about our guest today because uh, Lawrence Owens is a former lecturer of mine. He is absolutely awesome. And you're going to love this talk because we're going to be talking about some amazing stuff. So he's a bioarchaeologist and a published author. Um, he's a lecturer at Birkbeck College, University London. Obviously, I've mentioned he's my former lecturer, who is, funnily enough, never at home and if you do want to find him, you can find him in Egypt, Peru, Bolivia, Ghana, South Africa. There's just this whole long list of places you can find him. But we have finally cornered him to have a chat with us. And we're going to be talking about mummies today, which is probably one of the most awesome topics that we can. So hi, Lawrence. Hi, Alina. How's it going? Oh, it's great. I mean, how are you doing during lockdown? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm gaining weight. Um, I'm gaining hair because I can't get anywhere near a barber. <laughs> um, I'm doing a lot of Joe Wicks exercising behaviour, which is frankly undignified. But, you know, apart from that, I'm muddling along, muddling along, I guess. I mean, it's really horrible for archaeologists at the moment, isn't it? You're all stuck at home and you should be out doing fieldwork right now, shouldn't you? You've got cabin fever. I ought to be in Peru at the moment right now. And I should be going to Egypt in about a month and a half's time as well. So we have all these projects are totally just stopped dead in their tracks. And so there's lots of frustrated archaeologists sitting at home, writing all the papers and books they're meant to written the last couple of years and didn't so in some respect i guess it's a positive i mean what we could do we could you know give you a project to do in the garden i mean isn't that close enough no <laughs> um, well we, uh, i've got kind of a window box and the window box was all had already been done about five or six times so no <laughs> i mean i don't, I don't think is really enough but i mean thanks for the thought i'll bear it in mind <laughs> <laughs> right so let's get down to a bit of mummy talk but before we touch on the mummies i want to know um, why bioarchaeology? Um, why bioarchaeology? Um, well, I started off being a normal archaeologist and I kind of swayed myself into bioarchaeology because, um, you know, most archaeologists like humans because they wanted to learn about humans. And so why look at pots and basketware and everything else if you can look at the humans themselves? And also because people like humans. I mean, remember when you were uh, in my class, for example, writing I love you on your eyelids, sitting in the <laughs> Everybody, please, I did not do that. Oh, you so did. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm fascinated by humans. You can relate to humans because humans are just like you and me and thousands of years ago. It doesn't matter how far apart they are. We go through the same things. We have bad backs and we go to work and we grumble and we have good days and bad days. And then eventually we die. And so therefore these things are universal. So understanding humans is really the aim of archaeologists. And so we really, every, everyone ought to be a bioarchaeologist. <laughs> I've got to tell you guys, listen, when I first met Lawrence, 
Um, do you know what? He can tell you the most amazing things about you. It is absolutely crazy. He can look at the way you're standing or the way, you know, you've positioned your body and he can tell you, like, for example, he looked at a friend of mine and said, you're a ballet dancer. And she's like, yes, how do you know? And it's just, it's awesome. It's like, for me, it's a little bit of voodoo. <laughs> uh, Sherlock Holmes, the bone detective sort of thing. Sherlock Bones, really, or Indiana Bones, <laughs> if you like, you know, all that sort of stuff. I like that, Indiana Bones. That's going to be your new nickname from now on. But <laughs> whereabouts can you, where can you do bioarchaeology? Well, that's the one benefit of doing bioarch is you can do it literally anywhere. I mean, if you decide, for example, to do nothing but medieval pipe stems from London, you're going to be stuck in London for the rest of your career. In my case, um, you can go anywhere humans have been, which means essentially everywhere in the world, including Antarctica, because humans have been there too, of course. Um, and you can work anywhere you like. But even then, there are certain parts of the world, of course, which really do pull all archaeologists and all bioarchaeologists towards them like magnets. Go on, tell us, where are these places? You have to be able to, you know, surely realise it's going to be Egypt. Egypt is probably the holy grail of really everyone, really, because it's just such a weird and ancient and bizarre culture. So many fantastically bizarre things about it that we don't really see anywhere else in the world, and it's just fascinating. And everyone, no matter how grown up they maintain they are, archaeologists are secretly five years old. They are five years old. They want to dig a large hole and find cool things. I mean, that's all there is to it. They want to disguise it as much as they like and write lots of learned books and papers, but I can tell you from personal experience that secretly we want to dig a large hole and find a mummy. That's all there is to it. Do you know what? I've got to admit this. When I was really, really young, uh, well, really, really young, um, about 11 years old, before I discovered the Second World War, I actually wanted to become an Egyptologist and discover mummies. That was like the one thing I wanted to do. Everyone does. You're in good company. I want to do the same thing. Although, weirdly, I did become an archaeologist. Uh, but you do it. This is what you do. This is your job. This is absolutely amazing. So why do you, I know you just kind of described why you do like Egypt, but is there anything else you really, truly love about excavating in Egypt? Um, it's just so, well, <laughs> I'm heat adapted. <laughs> so I like the heat. I like the environment, I like the history, I like the scenery, I like the language, which I'm learning, and I'm very, very bad at still, but I'm, just, I'm muddling by in Arabic, more or less, which is interesting. Um, I like the fact that many of the really big questions about humans can be answered in Egypt. And so, for example, maybe five, six, seven thousand years ago, villages and cities were really rare in the world. And the earliest places that we really have them are various parts of the Middle East, like around Mesopotamia and Egypt. And so in one of my sites, for instance, we can actually look at what happens to people as cities and um, large settlements start to happen for the first time. And I can tell you whether or not living in a city is good for you or not by looking at these bones, for instance. But we are here to talk about mummies. So tell us about some of the best mummies you've dug up. I'm pretty sure that's not the technical term, but your favourites in Egypt. In Egypt. Well, I mean, in Egypt, I've worked in about half a dozen different sites um, and they span uh, about three, about three and a half thousand years. And so all the way from the very beginning of Egypt in the pre-dynastic period, which is about three and a half thousand or so BC, right the way through to the Romans and the Greeks as they were finally leaving uh, Egypt in like the fourth, fifth centuries um, AD. Uh, the mummies vary all over the place, really. The best examples of mummies probably come from the dynastic period when people like Ramses, for instance, and all the other major pharaohs are mummified spectacularly well. They look like they could get up and walk off their beards. They're really, really well preserved, beautifully um, well maintained and so forth, and very realistic and very lifelike. And then, of course, as time goes by and people begin to lose interest in doing it properly, 
all of the processes start to be forgotten. So by the time you get to the Greek and the Roman period, they do some genuinely weird things, like giving you a massive enema with a bulb full of tar, for example, trying to preserve your internal organs, which must have been a rather bizarre experience. Wow. Just, just wow. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about the process for the earlier mummies? Because I think everybody who they, well, when people think of Egypt, they think of, like you said, Ramesses. What yeah. was the process then? Well, the, the mummification um, started off modestly, I think, because mummies, the earliest mummies are not mummies at all. They're ones which were found lying around the, uh, the desert, well preserved by a mistake, basically, from the dry sand. Um, and people got it into their head, this was a good idea. And then they realized the bodies tended to go a bit nasty if you left them and just buried them in the ground as they were. Their religion started to change. And so they said, people must reach the afterworld looking as they did. And so therefore, you must make the person look the same. And so you basically, you put lots of silica gel all over them. You got stuff called natron and you dry the body out. But of course, that wasn't really enough. And so first of all, you gut the body by slashing a hole in the side of it, sticking your hand inside and pulling out all the nasty squishy bits. The squishy bits go into jars and the only part left in your body is the heart. Then you stuff the body with various drying out materials. You wax the entire body. You cover it with all sorts of um, unguents. And of course, when you get to the head, you get a large corkscrew device, stick it up the left nostril usually, smash through the part of your upper part of your nose and then hoik the brain out in liquid form. And of course, if you might think that the brain's too large to come out of your nose, you scramble it first. And so you stick the scrambling device up your nose, give it a good rattle, then pull it out and pfft, brain out the nose. That's, uh, that's the main process that you used to go through as a starter. When wow. you finish doing that, you wrap the body up after you've uh, waxed it and so forth and generally carried on. Uh, you um, cover it with amulets. You wrap uh, parchments into a roll, telling you gods what to do with the body when it gets to the afterworld. And then, of course, after three months, the body is finally ready and you inter it in a grave. And with any luck, three or four thousand years later, I find it and tell you all about it. So three months it takes? So just, three months. Just... That's how long it takes, yeah. Wow. Um... There are people who died unexpectedly occasionally in the past. I mean, there are various kings who died when they shouldn't have. Um, and you can tell there was a massive rush on to get the, get the grave uh, done in time. And of course, the most famous example is King Tut. I mean, King Tut, um, his, uh, if you look, if you think about how grand his stuff was in his tomb, with gold masks and gold coffins and all the rest of it, the tomb itself is absolutely rubbish. I mean, it really is. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's magnificent in its way, but if you compare the painting and the quality of the painting on the walls and how quickly and sloppily it was done compared to the other really big tombs like Seti and the Ramses and so forth in the Valley of the Kings, you'll see that they really, really rushed it because, of course, he died when he was only about 19 or so, or 17. And so, therefore, he obviously, no one thought he was going to pass on so fast. Many of the objects in his tomb aren't even his. They're his mum's. That's kind of sad a little bit if you think about it. It is sad, but I mean, the thing is, of course, about all this sort of thing is human, humans are predictable in some respects. If we go back far enough, everyone was subject to the same kind of problems. Uh, and so therefore you can see kind of the human, human panic, if you like, in this particular case, and like human reactions and the way in which people adapted and tried to adapt to a new situation. Um, and it's uh, very different from just looking at the finished products of what humans did when they were feeling perky, like pots and all that sort of thing. So it's nice to have the human aspect in these cultural objects. And that's what archaeologists, of course, really want. So you've got mummies from the time of Ramesses and you've got them up to the Greco-Roman period. How do they change over time? Well, I mean, Egypt was um, kind of isolated to a certain extent and very, very powerful, the most powerful nation in the ancient world for a long time. 
But eventually other, other empires grew up around the outside of it and they started to influence Egypt, invade it sometimes, attack it and even take it over in places. So as a result of this, certain cultural traditions start to change and evolve. So when the Middle Easterners began to invade in the first uh, millennium BC, for example, burials start looking completely different and the mummies start developing the appearance of Mesopotamians. When the Greeks started to invade, suddenly Greek fashions start to appear in these mummies and they're wearing these genuinely bizarre topless dresses, which is, you know, must have raised quite a few eyebrows in Egypt because they were quite modest. And suddenly you have these, these uh, rather rather fruity mummies, which are like scattered all over the place, and they're wearing the finest fashions and the best earrings and all the rest of it. And the mummification process itself starts taking a secondary seat, really. Everyone's more keen on the external appearance of what it looks like. So rather than being a deal that you strike with the afterlife, it's more a case of showing off to your friends just how amazing and awesome and fashionable you were when you were alive. The big perk about being buried in the Roman period is that they had some of the most fantastic portraits of the entire ancient world occasionally painted on pieces of wood that were like stretched over your face when you were buried and so you're bundled up in the usual way more or less but you have the portrait of you when you're alive over your face and so these are startlingly beautiful they're called the Fayum portraits and uh, Petrie found these things over a hundred years ago in the Fayum oasis hence the name and they're probably one of the ancient world's most beautiful uh, art products I'd say. So at least we'll be able to know what these people truly look like well not truly but relatively close to. Yeah, more or less. I mean, like you said, I think they're probably optimistic at times. I mean, there's a few examples when you've got the, the person's skull and the portrait. And they, I, I would say they were charitable. <laughs> charitable, really. Uh, it's, it's possible, of course, they were painted when the people were younger and then they died, obviously, when they were older and not quite so pretty anymore. But certainly they are magnificent things and they really are worth a look. Do you find evidence of things like people being murdered when you uncover mummies? Um, we do. We do find some that are murdered. I mean, there's, uh, there's some particularly gruesome examples of uh, one, one individual uh, who has actually been stabbed in the head um, half a dozen times and beaten to death. And that's not particularly pleasant. That's a royal mummy. Um, and there are lots of uh, individuals who suffered uh, perimortem or near-to-death fractures of various sorts and had fairly rigorous and robust lives. But in many cases, you wouldn't necessarily know uh, that the person had died violently because unless you do something really gross, like crushing in someone's head or disemboweling them or something like that, you wouldn't leave any marks on the bones. So therefore, that's really down to that. Uh, there's even, well, I know at one point, for example, in Egypt, the penalty for stealing horses, I believe it was, was to be impaled with a big spike up your bottom, which, of course, would leave no marks on the bones at all, although you would definitely feel it, I would have thought. Ouch. Oh, <laughs> oh no, sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, believe me, compared to the Assyrians, for example, the Egyptians are actually quite pacific by comparison. Trust me on this one. Do you know what? That sounds like a whole other podcast for us to talk about. That, that would be really interesting. We have to have, have, we're going to have to get you back because this is really interesting stuff. I'm going to bring up, I'm going to bring up uh, a man, if I'm right, it is a man, you may correct mm -hmm. me on this one, um, who you did talk to us about uh, when we were at school, <clears throat> university, sorry, who lives in the British Museum. Oh, yes, Ginger. Do you, can you tell us a little bit about Ginger? Well, Ginger is actually a series of different mummies who all look the same and they're rotated on occasion to make sure they don't get too worn out. Um, which date back to the pre-dynastic period of Egypt. So that's over 5,000 years ago. And they are the inspiration, as far as one can make out, really, for people making mummies on purpose. And so these guys are brilliantly preserved, but by sheer accident. So they were just like buried in really, really dry, silica-rich sand that like hoiked the moisture out of them. 
um, and left them beautifully, if gingerly, preserved with like rather bizarre, rather unusual red hair, which is caused by the preservation in the ground. And they're fascinating in many respects because they are um, the, the main ginger managed to get shot in the back. If you look closely at the mummy on, the, on his shoulder blade, you can actually see a hole where an arrowhead has gone in. And one of them also has the earliest tattoo in the world as well, which is about obviously as old as those guys are, so something over 5,000 years old. So they're already tattooing back there as well. It's fascinating in a way because I work on a site called KHD in the north of Egypt, and it's the same period as these guys. So far, we haven't found anything as well preserved. But ginger is probably the, one of the most famous, justifiably so, mummies in the entire world, I would say. And uh, whenever I'm in the, in the museum, I always go and see them. Can you tell our listeners where you can find Ginger in the British Museum? Ginger uh, is uh, upstairs, so he's on the first floor. And so you go either in the lifts or up the, uh, up the stairs or around where the, uh, the restaurant and the shops are. So that big reading room in the centre, cross across the bridge into the Egyptian galleries. And when you get there, you turn to the right and keep on walking and you will see a huge crowd of people with cameras that's where ginger is. <laughs> so we've talked about Egypt, but where else in the world can you find mummies? Well, um, by sheer coincidence, I happen to work somewhere else also is quite mummy friendly. And South America is the answer, really. South America is the other kind of holy grail, lesser holy grail, perhaps, as far as mummies are concerned. But nonetheless, incredibly important as well, because as well as having uh, some really dramatic mummies, they also have the world's oldest and in some respects, the world's most, world's saddest mummies as well. Can you tell us about Juanita? No, she is, um, she's probably the most, the best preserved ancient human in the world, uh, almost without, without a doubt. I mean, she's, she's young by comparison to the uh, mummies in Egypt. I mean, she's about 500, 600 years old, more or less, as opposed to those guys who are like 3,000 to 4,000 years old. And she was herself quite young as well. So she was only in her late well, around about early teens, perhaps, when she died. But she was something special. She really, really was. Uh, because it came from something which you may have heard of called the Capacucha burials. Now, do you remember that, Alina, when you were at college? <clears throat> no comment. <laughs> you know, I knew you weren't listening in the class. But anyway, Capacucha <laughs> um, is one of the most bizarre things. Uh, the Incas got it into their heads that they had to sacrifice to their various deities and to get them to those gods, you had to put those sacrifices as high as possible to make sure that they could find them or get to them. And what they used to do is select the most perfect kids they could find. Generally, the kids, boys are under the age of 12, girls are maybe slightly older, and they had to be absolutely flawless in every way. No moles, no wrinkles, no scars, no nothing. Treated like royalty, really well revered, taken up a mountain and viciously killed, buried alive, occasionally poisoned, dispatched, and then stuck into a hole in the ground where very often they were still alive when they went in and therefore died of either asphyxiation or occasionally hypothermia. I, I don't know how to respond to that. It's pretty nasty. The thing is, of course, they generally believed they were doing a great thing and the kids themselves were encouraged to believe, although I'm not sure if they did believe, there was a huge honour uh, to be chosen to do this because, of course, it had to be very, very pretty or very, very good-looking or handsome, pure and all the rest of it. It's also the way that the Inca used to keep sovereignty over their various kingdoms, because the Inca had the biggest empire in the pre-industrial world, pretty much, enormously large and very, very powerful. Um, and they decided that rather than just rushing around the place murdering each other, which they did used to do as well, and used to make drums out of enemies' skin, for example, just as a matter of, as a matter of interest, 
um, they thought that they would get people into the religion and into the system of, of faith, and this is what they had to do to uh, to do that. So I suppose they were rather rather good at spin in their way at the time. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How many of these have you discovered? Um, I, I don't work up in the Andes. It's too cold. I like on the coast. <laughs> but there are, there, there are remains of, of a few dozen, I would say. But most, the Juanita is the best example by far. And there's another good half a dozen or so equally nicely preserved ones, more or less. Um, some of them have had the additional misfortune to be hit by lightning after they had been buried as well. So therefore, they really did get it. But um, they are phenomenal things. And Juanita herself is probably the most famous ancient human, really. Probably definitely in the Americas, possibly in the world. Have they, have they got any other traditions? Um, oh, they have, they have numerous traditions. Um, but they, like, well, when it comes to the, the gory and the gruesome, they're probably the, uh, doing that will probably be rank number one. Uh, but Machu Picchu is their big architectural achievement. They have the amazing road networks. They used to make those spreading all over the entire country. If the Europeans hadn't invaded and knocked out tens of millions of people in the Americas, like 98% kill-off rate probably in the entire Americas thanks to the Europeans turning up they would have become the most literate sophisticated enormously powerful kingdom on the planet possibly but it wasn't to be that's um I don't know I don't know how to react to that really well it's rather hard isn't it unfortunately the thing is the thing about the Americas in general is everything in the Americas that you see that the architecture the sophistication and the and the, the written language, the use of copper, the use of ceramics, all of these things were invented independently of the old world. And so they came up with them all by themselves all over again. And so these things are not invented once, but twice or even many times. Um, a good example of this is to say pottery, for example, which uh, pops up in East Asia, Western Asia, and the Americas independently from each other. Civilizations themselves pop into existence and fade away again, depending on the environment, depending on other things. And so, you know, this game, archaeology, isn't just a case of digging out pots and looking at them. It's really big questions. It's really fun to see how this all relates to um, how humans do what they do. When you're looking at Egyptian mummies or South American mummies, what are the similarities between the two? The mummies are, are very different uh, because in most cases, the, the, the Native Americans, the, uh, the Peruvians especially, didn't intend to preserve them quite as well. But there are some exceptions. The Inca used to preserve the bodies of particularly elite chiefs, for example, and they would parade them around the town every year or so, or on special occasions and ceremonial occasions, when they would go and look at their or talk to their people again, although they were, of course, actually dead. That's something that they didn't necessarily do in Egypt. 
But conversely, you might think that the world's oldest mummies are Egyptian, and you would logical, isn't it? But in fact, they're not. They're Chilean. And so therefore, the Chilean mummies are genuinely bizarre. They come from this culture called the Chinchorro, and it's about 7,000 years ago. And what they used to do is uh, deflesh the bodies, pretty much, and then reassemble them like a gigantic puppet made, with, uh, made of the bones, wrapped around with uh, twigs and bits of uh, leaf and so forth, and to turn them into like mannequins, and then dress them in clothes, and then put a face over their actual face made out of clay and painted different colours depending on the age and sex of the individual who died, and then carry those things around with them for hundreds and even thousands of years. Now that's an unusual one. Can we go anywhere else around the world with mummies? Apart from uh, South America, Egypt? Yeah, we, can go, we can go everywhere. But thinking about mummies also, if you can take it as, a, as very loosely as defined as a preserved body, they're everywhere. I mean, for example, they used to have them in Scotland, for example. A preserved body that looks like it was actually smoked over a fire in the Bronze Age, was lugged around until the Iron Age, then buried and buried in a hut. So it, therefore it came up a thousand years too old for the hut it was buried in. Then there's Ertzi. Ertzi is the ice mummy, which you may have heard of. Ah, uh, yes. We studied you know? him. We studied him. We did. We did. Well, there, we he's a lovely, lovely example. He's not a mummy as such. He's just a body that happened to be preserved. But wow, what preservation. And this guy was amazing. He was just turned up with all of his uh, accoutrements, all of his uh, bows and arrows and weapons and stuff like that. Turns out he got shot in the back as well. Although it took the archaeologist over a decade to spot the arrowhead, which is a bit unfortunate, but nonetheless, he got there in the end. And you could tell out what his, what his last meal was and all the rest of it. We have bog bodies, of course. They come from northern Europe and Scandinavia. They're kind of funky. Uh, and they died in really grotesque ways very often for reasons that are not completely clear. There's one particular example always makes me cringe slightly, which is a guy about as tall as me. And by the way, I'm over six foot seven. Um, and he was cut into three or four pieces like stripes and his nipples were cut off, and then he was buried in various parts of the same bog, which always makes me kind of, yeah, twitch. Um, and then there was uh, another body who is, in, um, who is in the British Museum as well. He's a bog body as well. Um, and he was strangled and stabbed and clubbed to death as well. So therefore, they were really determined to do away with him. Um, and then so these people are buried in the bogs. And because, of course, the preservation is so fantastic, we can even tell what their last meals were on occasion. Are there any more women that you can tell us about? Well, yes. I mean, like uh, the bog bodies include very lots of good women as well. I mean, in fact, women, young women and warrior-ish looking men, although there are variations, are the two big categories of, of sacrificed people. And so if you're going to do something very dramatic, like, you know, kill somebody and for the sake of your society or as a revenge for something they've done or whatever, you're going to choose somebody highly visible. And when it comes to the bog bodies, especially, people tended to be fall into those two categories. And so therefore, there's uh, lots of women, in fact, teenage girls, especially uh, from the bogs of uh, Scandinavia. That's really uh, interesting. Of course, the mummy is, is, a, is a girl as well. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm also curious because I know, I know during lectures, um, you did mention that you can tell so much from from bones, from looking just looking at the the skeletal remains. Um, what else can you tell apart from obviously if somebody was shot or hung or or whatever you know? Well, you can. The thing is about bones is you can look into someone's life in a way that you can't do by asking them questions because first of all they might lie to you, <laughs> and secondly of all they may not necessarily know the answers, and so therefore you can look at a body a burial. And you can find out the person's height and age and weight and sex and occupation and biological origin 
and diet. And not only diet, but you can tell how that diet changed through time. And you can look at their hair if it's preserved. And you can work out their diet for the last six months or two years of their lives, depending on how long it is. Then you can look at their teeth and you can find out where they came from, where they were born, where the nearest spring was to where they were born in the world. You can nail that thing down to maybe 20 or 30 square miles in the entire planet. And so if you found someone's body lying in the street here in London, let's say, um, and you didn't know anything else about them, you could actually sample the dental enamel and find out that they came from Adelaide or Cameroon or anywhere else in the world purely on that basis, which is frankly a remarkable thing to be able to do. I think we're both stunned by how much you can tell by just looking at a dead body. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, like, it is, it's forensics. I mean, like, it's really a bit historical forensics. When it comes to doing archaeology and looking at burials, very often, what are you looking at when you look at a burial? What you're looking at is what the people who buried the person wanted you to think. They didn't jump into the ground and grave themselves, all their stuff saying, mine, and then, like, you know, <laughs> bury themselves. You know, they obviously got buried by somebody else. I mean, if you bury somebody with a huge winged angel over their grave, what does that mean? That they're an angel or they were religious or they believed in angels or something like that? The, the interpretations of these things are very squiffy, frankly. It's a bit dodgy. When it comes to bones, they can lie to you, of course. I mean, all things can lie to you. Facts are difficult to nail down at the best of times. But the lies that bones tell you are pretty small, really. One of the reasons why people tend to gravitate towards this subject is you can actually give some reasonably cogent answers to these complicated questions. Now, you mentioned a minute ago about women for example. And so therefore, women's and their status in the past is obviously a big issue at the moment. And so you can look at people's burial goods and make certain conclusions. But you can also look at their bones and find out they were weaned differently. They had different diets. They grew less well or better than their male, male uh, contemporaries. Things like this are actually very, very informative. And you can really find out what sort of uh, fictions we're living with at the moment, women's status and all the rest of it, and how it's changed through time and what things tend to affect it. I love it. I really do. I should have. Uh, I should have sticked with the bioarchaeology, to be honest. Yeah, so, you weren't paying attention to the lecture, though, were you? you were terrible. <laughs> terribly sad. Terribly sad. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, though. <clears throat> sorry. To be fair, though, uh, you did show us some incredible, absolutely incredible bones. I mean, that one lesson where we we got to basically. I mean, it's a little bit gruesome, but put together a, a, the body of a baby. I mean the tiny bones it was just unimaginable that that came from a, a child it's amazing isn't it really and that's the thing about bones is they really speak to you because i mean of course everyone is like i say everyone is a human so therefore you relate to a human you don't really don't look at a pot and think to yourself goodness me this pot is magnificent you might think it's pretty but you can't relate to it when you meet someone for the first time someone an ancestor of yours, let's say it's a distant relative of yours who never even knew that you had you steam over there to meet them you're determined to meet them to find out more about them. They answer the door, you don't steam into their living room and start examining all their pottery, you know what I mean? <laughs> you want to say, hey, how are you doing? How tall are you? How heavy are you? Where did you come from? What color are your eyes? What, what's your first recollection? All these sorts of things are people stuff. You know, we like people stuff. And so therefore, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not <laughs> against archaeology, uh, archaeology pots and all the rest of it. We need these things, of course, and they are interesting and fascinating as well. But this just gives a whole extra dimension of information for me. So that's why I keep plugging it so hard in my lectures. Look, I'm going to say this. I really hate pottery. And um, <laughs> excavating for two weeks and just dealing with pottery just makes me hate pottery. So forever and ever, I will hate pottery, no matter Pretty what. Pretty bad stuff. I don't know. Oh. I mean, like, I was trained on prehistoric sites. There wasn't any pottery. So I worked in a, in a site in northern Israel, for example. 
and a Neanderthal site. And so I was spared all this when I first started doing this about over 25, oh my God, almost 30 years ago. Um, but, uh, believe, but pottery is something that people have to get used to, I'm afraid. <laughs> One of those things archaeologists have to face up to. You as a historian, I'm quite sure, have to deal with all kinds of undesirable things as well in what you do. Typical Alex and Elena question here. Have you ever unwrapped a mummy? Is it something that you get to do? Yes, many times. I'm actually writing a paper about this right now, as a matter of fact, so I'm quite full of information on the whole mummy front. Um, so this takes me back to my site in Peru, and I have various sites there, but the most important one by far is called Pachacamac. It sounds a bit like Pacamac, but isn't, okay? So Pachacamac. <laughs> um, it's on the coast. It's occupied for over a 1,000 years. Really important site. They have a religious oracle there back in the olden days, and so therefore they came to come there and ask for, you know, say prayers and so on to the oracle. And even when I went there for the first time 15 years ago, people were still coming to pray to the oracle, even though, you know, obviously these days Peru is ostensibly a Christian country. They still came and do this, worship this God who lived there. The thing about this is that if you wanted to get buried and you're a bit fancy, you would be taken somewhere like Pachacamac or you might go there to try and be cured of an illness because they thought that the oracle could heal you, just like they could in various Greek oracles. But of course, inevitably, it didn't generally work. And so you were buried there. And sometimes those burials are really quite flamboyant things. And we found this really funky looking burial about three or four years ago now. Um, it looked like, oh, I don't know, it looked like a gigantic cone made of rushes. And so therefore it's about four and a half feet high and about three feet wide. It looked like a big basket. You know those big baskets you put your clothes in, dirty clothes baskets? Yeah. It looks a bit like that, more or less. Okay. And this thing, we thought to ourselves, we have to preserve this because generally speaking, if you can preserve objects, you should. You shouldn't necessarily take them to bits. But this one was disintegrating visibly. It was really, really fragile because it wasn't made of like really wrapped mummy cloth like they are in Egypt, but in rushes and plant materials. So it was really, really fragile. And so we took this thing to be CAT scanned. And we look on the look inside of it, and we uh, we had the scan on, and then the plane started running through the by the bundle, and you could see this individual just appear out of nowhere. This this guy, he was obviously fairly old because he had no teeth, very robust individual. He was sitting down with his hands under his chin and his hat and his elbows into his chest, more or less, all up wrapped up in a bundle, and he had all these levels of cloth around him, and he'd been tied up with these uh, with these straps down the body and he wasn't going to survive as a mummy so we gradually unwrapped him and it took us absolutely ages every single layer came off there's maybe 12 different layers and you have layer after layer of different sorts of uh, plants different sorts of leaves and so on and then you've got down to the textile layers that were disintegrating with knots and you had to undo the knots having mapped how they were laid out and drawn them and photographed them and described them and then on the very inside of it you had this guy who hadn't seen light of day for almost a thousand years and he was like, must have been a grumpy old guy because he had a really bad back. He had a really bad right shoulder. He had almost no teeth left. He had a, suffered really quite a long and difficult and arduous life. And to add insult to injury, when they buried him, they hadn't buried all of him because it looks like what they were doing was going back to the burial and taking bits away as some kind of religious rite, perhaps. And so, you know, I have a piece of Bob. Bob was sacred or whatever it happens. <laughs> this sort of thing. And so Bob, as it were, has become, became this, and now this amazing, amazing mummy that we have. And there's only about, you know, half and half three quarters of him there. Oh, wow. And so therefore that was, I've unwrapped many burials over the years, Pachacamac, uh, because the burials very often not particularly well preserved and you can't conserve them as you would want to. Um, but that one really sticks in my memory uh, as being one that stands out. Yeah. Wow, that's um, 
that's pretty awesome actually i'm quite jealous that you've got to do that and i'm assuming everybody sitting at home thinks that is so awesome it, it, uh, it is this job is well, what's the old saying um archaeology is a fascinating mistress but she brings a poor diary believe me that is true you are going to live in penury <laughs> you need <laughs> need a trust fund or a wealthy spouse or something or, a, or you want to live under a bridge this is a good way to do it because archaeology is not going to make you rich at all unless you're unusually good at writing popular books about aliens which seems to be one of those big things everyone wants to hear about oh yeah aliens totally forgot about that tell us tell us about the alien theory that's happening that's that's brilliant which one? the one <laughs> um, the, the yeah. excavation they did not long ago that they found oh, yeah, that, yeah. Well, the thing is, of course, archaeology is beset by people who are convinced aliens exist. Um, and so therefore, they want, they want to believe in aliens for some reason. And so you can't go near a pyramid description without someone talking about how it maps, maps star constellations and is a navigational device. The Nazca lines are the landing strips for UFOs, for example. That was a big one. Everyone loved that one. And a couple of years ago, redonkulously, there was this uh, case in Chile where everyone decided that they found these alien bones. Um, if you look at Chilean skulls in the pre-Hispanic period, they're really weird shapes. They look like bums, basically. There's no other way around. They look like a bum. The reason they look like a bum is because they've been bound when the kid was really young. So you know that kids' heads are soft. You shouldn't touch them when they're very, very young, right? This is the case in Peru and elsewhere in the world, Africa as well, uh, and Australia and England, actually, for that matter, a very long time ago. You would actually bind the head with bandages, pieces of wood, other things, and the head would take on a different shape. And so you could actually tell the person's ethnicity or where they came from, perhaps, or if they're male or female or whatever it happened to be. And some of the most spectacularly over-the-top examples of this come from Chile where not only are they bum-shaped, but elongated bum-shaped. So they're very often like about a foot and a half long. They look really peculiar. People, therefore, are always keen on this idea of aliens. And then someone just said, declared they had found these long alien fingers, very long, strange, attenuated things like aliens are meant to have if you watched various alien movies. And then, of course, it turned out what they really were were baby bones that had been glued together by some faker. And so it's one of those sort of like Piltdown Man faking things. And people, of course, are determined to hear about aliens. And so, ironically, this fake uh, Mummy got more press coverage than hundreds of thousands of other real discoveries taking place at the same time around the world. So it's one of those things, I suppose. Wow, that's incredible. That's really sad, though. You know, people that try to do that and try to, you know, falsify and and makes your job harder at the end of the day. It makes your job harder. It means, it means of course, that people uh, don't, may not take archaeology very seriously. You think it's basically alien hunting. But archaeologists, generally speaking, if cynical creatures though they may be, and very often alcoholic as well, yeah. um, are genuine and earnest <laughs> most of the time, and they are determined to get to the root of this. Yes, they're five-year-olds who want to dig, don't get me wrong, but they do want to get to the root of these sorts of things. And so therefore, I would say, buy an archaeologist a drink, support an archaeologist, go to an archaeologist lecture. They like that. Do you know what? I'm going to change your name now to Alien Hunter. <laughs> Not alien hunting. Indiana Bones, if you like. I, I, I could live with that. But no, 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 Indiana alien. Bones, the Alien Hunter. I like that. That is, that is going to be officially your new name. But listen, tell our listeners, because I'm, I'm assuming many of them want to know, where can you study bioarchaeologist? Uh, bioarchaeologist, sorry. <laughs> well, bioarchaeology can be studied in uh, most, in Britain at least, in most university archaeology courses, they have a section for it. It's rather difficult to undertake bioarchaeology as a study just by itself, um, because most universities only do that at the master's level and above. Although, oddly, if you happen to live in London, 
Uh, Birkbeck is one of the few places that you can do it. So you can actually do these evening classes, which are certificate courses, the higher certificate courses. Um, and I will teach you, so therefore I have reason enough to do it, you would think. Um, and you, I basically teach you the methods of, how, of anatomy. So you go through the entire skeleton and work out all of the bones and such. And then you go on to the, the advanced stuff, which is essentially how to age and sex the individuals and work out where they come from, their height, their weight, all that sort of thing as well. And that can be done as part of an undergraduate degree and a master's, therefore, or as a short course in Birkbeck. Amazing. So thank you so much, uh, Lawrence. That was great. I mean, learning about mummies from Egypt. We're going to South America. We even learned about Chile and various even Scandinavian countries. And we've got to get you back on to do some more, uh, some more stuff. So that was amazing. Thank you so much. No problem. Join us tomorrow when Richard Osgood will be with us to talk about Saxons, specifically Barrow Clump Saxon Cemetery. This is our first bit of Saxon history, so we're very excited. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both.